Hello, I'm Shane Hartsfield, pastor of Beaver Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ or questions about our church, direct you to our website, beaverbaptist.com, for our contact information. Weekly, we study exegetically through books of the Bible. And now, join us as we dive into today's passage. Scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 18. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 18. Uh, If you don't have a Bible or if you didn't bring one or whatever the case may be, uh, we encourage you to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. We'd like you to um, read along with us. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 18. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Caleb and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Caleb. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Caleb against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Caleb, and I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Caleb and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Caleb. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had, come, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told that Saul, that David had come to Caleb. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and has bars. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war, to down to Caleb, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Caleb to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Caleb surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. But the Lord said, He will come down. And David said, Will the men of Caleb surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, rose and departed from Caleb, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Caleb, he gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds of the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziv. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be the king over Israel, and I shall be the king, ne- and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan. First Samuel chapter twenty-three, page two ninety in the Black Pew Bible. If you need one, I encourage you to follow along. We're going through a, what's called a Old Testament narrative, so. We do our scripture reading, some of the texts we won't be able to read word for word, so it'd be good if you have your Bibles, you can read along with us as I hop, skip, and jump through the story. We are going to study 1 Samuel chapter 23 through 24 this morning. Let me give you kind of the context. This book was, all these things that take place is started off in one of the darkest times in Israel's history. It was during the time of the judges where the Israelites had conquered the promised land to some degree, but in a lot of ways the promised land had conquered them and they were being oppressed by other 
pagan nations that they were supposed to have eliminated years ago. But God raises up military leaders, judges, to lead them to victory. And it was during the time of the judges that these circumstances arose. There was a woman named Hannah, she, a God-fearing woman. She didn't have any children. She couldn't have any children. And so she prays to the Lord for God to give her a child, a son, and, and He did. And she said, if you give me a child... Lord, I will give him back to you. And she had a little boy named Samuel. And she gave that child back to the Lord. And he grew up in Eli's household at the temple, serving the Lord. And Samuel is a godly man. He's the last judge and also the first prophet. And what it means to be a prophet is he's God's mouthpiece. God would deliver a message to him and he would share that message with the intended audience. And the intended audience is the nation of Israel. Samuel is so faithful, loving the Lord. But Israel is not. In fact, Israel asked for a king, not just any king. And, and having a, a good leader is a desire of many people. But they wanted a king like the other nations. And God had set Israel apart to be different, to be unlike the other nations. And so God granted their wish and gave them a king named Saul. And he was head and shoulders, taller than everyone else. And he looked like a king. He looked like the kings that any of the pagan nations might have. But Saul didn't lead well. Things haven't been going well these last few chapters. As Saul has disobeyed the Lord and as Saul disobeys the Lord, the Lord rejects him as king. But he sent Samuel to anoint the new king. And this king is not head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He doesn't maybe look like a king, definitely not the king of the nations, but he is a shepherd boy, the youngest son of Jesse. And he anoints him king. And what we've been trying to answer these last few weeks is how does David, the new king of Israel, get from the pasture to the throne? And so we're in chapter 3. Saul is contrasted with David throughout the book of 1 Samuel. Saul is out to take life. We saw that last week. And Saul is put to death, all the priests, because Ahimelech helped David. He gave him bread and he gave him the sword of Goliath that he was holding for him. And as a result of that, Samuel punished him by not only killing him and his family, but all the, the whole town of Nob. And so Saul is taking life, but David, God's Messiah, God's anointed one, he is the one who Abiathar, which is the only escapee from that massacre, runs to. He goes to David for safety and for blessing. And those who place their hope in God's Messiah and what God is going to do through him will find salvation, won't he? Abiathar was seeking salvation from the one who wanted to take his life, and he runs to David. And not only has Saul killed God's priest at Nob, but Saul is still seeking out David's life. If you remember, David, he had to come to Saul's rescue. He does this time and time again, but there's a nine-foot-nine giant, an enemy called Goliath that David killed for Saul and for the nation of Israel and for God's glory. But what happened after that event is there was a song made up about David and Saul. And the song went something like this. 
Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And what happened is Saul heard that is there was a seed of jealousy planted in the heart of Saul and that took root and grew. And now he's not only bitter, he's not only paranoid, but he's, he's out for vengeance. He's out to take David's life because he knows that David is possibly going to take the throne from him. But Saul is not in control. Saul can't put his hands on David. It's, it's like the Wally Coyote and the Roadrunner. Some of you young people don't even know who that is, probably. But you should. That's what's wrong with this country. <laughs> Mr. Clyde, nobody watches the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show anymore. If they did, it would be a better place to live. But, but David, he, he can't be touched by Saul because David is in the shadow of the Almighty. In fact, Psalm 91, verse 1 through 2, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. David is being pursued by Saul. The pursuit continues as we see David being taken from the pasture to the throne. In chapter 23, Morgan read that text for us, and I'm just going to briefly touch on this story. David has been told by the prophet Gad to go to Judah, and he's in the forest of Hereth. He hears of trouble in Calah as the Philistines are robbing the threshing floors. In other words, they're allowing the Israelites to harvest their crops. But then what do they do? They come in and they... They don't, even do, they don't even go in and, and harvest the crops. They don't even go into the fields and take the crops. They wait for the Israelites to, to harvest it and go in and, and steal the crops from them. So, what does David do? What does a godly man do? He seeks the Lord, right? He wants to know direction and God tells him to go. But the band of men that he's gathered around him, they're somewhat ruffians, if you will. They weren't too sure about this because they were coming to help David resist Saul, but they didn't really sign up to go against the Philistines. But, so David seeks the Lord again, and, and the Lord affirms that, yeah, he's to go and to fight the Philistines. And so David takes his men, and they save Caleb from the Philistines. While David is in Caleb, Saul is destroying Nob. Of course, Ahimelech helped David, and Saul has taken out his fury upon that town. It's interesting, David is killing Philistines, the enemies of God's people, while Saul is killing Israelites, God's people. It's amazing, isn't it? Saul hears that David is in Calah, and he thinks erroneously that he has David trapped, and so he's going to Calah to put his hands on David. And Abiathar, he's the priest, and he has an ephod, and attached to that linen ephod is a, a breastplate and uh, Urim and Thummim. That's how God... Uh, Revealed his will oftentimes in the old covenant. And so David sought God again and found out Saul's coming. And not only is Saul coming to take his life, but the people of Calah whom he just saved, they're going to turn him over to Saul. So, I mean, think about that. You just saved these people's lives and their crops. Why in the world was it, would the the residents of Cala turn David over to Saul. We have to think about this. They probably have heard of the massacre at Nob. I'm sure they're afraid. 
David is being pursued. He's being pursued and he's being pursued over and over and over. But look in verse 13 and 14. This band of brothers, if you will, they're growing. The last we saw it was 400. Now it's 600 men. And no matter how hard Saul pursued David, God protected him. It's kind of that one plus God is a majority thing. Saul is determined, but determination's not enough because God was for David. And if God is for us, who can be against us, right? A couple things I want to point out in our text. The, the first thing we see in verse 15 through 18 is that godly people help others find strength in God. Godly people help others find strength in God. It's interesting, isn't it? That Saul can't find David, but yet Jonathan finds him whenever he wants to. And that, that's funny, isn't it? Jonathan is finding David rather rather easily. And it says in verse 16 that Jonathan went to David and strengthened his hand in God. Well, how does one help another find strength in God? A couple ways. I think firstly just by showing up. It's called the ministry of presence. And, And some of you do that as well. Someone you know, they lose a loved one. They lose a grandmother, a grandfather. They lose a, a parent, a friend, a child even. And what do you do? They're having that funeral and you go, right? And you don't even really know what to say. But you just go. It's called the ministry of presence. You just show up. You just be there for them. I think that's one way. And that's happened in your life and it's happened in my life. You're sick. Somebody... Drops off some food. You go to the hospital, somebody offers to take care of your kids, right? Yeah, it's just the ministry of presence. And it's interesting, Jonathan, he's meeting David, but by doing so, he's defying his father. It's no small thing for him just to show up. And for us, sometimes just showing up is no small thing, right? We have to take off work, or sometimes we go through a lot of trouble. But that's what a godly person does to help one find strength in God. He shows up. The second thing is just by reminding them of God's will. Reminding them of God's word. I mean, think about it. Jonathan was to be king. That was according to tradition. When a king died, his son, usually his eldest, would take over the throne. That's according to tradition, but that's not, in this case, not according to God's will, right? And Jonathan knew that. And he not only yielded to it, he embraced it. He was glad to be second to David. Again, we're reminded of John the Baptist and his attitude with Christ. I must decrease and Christ must increase. But Jonathan reminds David that God is in control and it's God's will that he be king, right? You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you, he says in verse 17. Saul, my father, also knows this. And again, they renew that covenant that they had made there in verse 18. I think we we need to take note of this. We need to be others-focused like Jonathan is. I mean, he is to be king, but yet he surrenders that right over to his friend. We need to be looking for ways that we can help others find strength in God by pointing them to His promises. I mean, think about it for a second. When tempted, if we know someone who's 
going through a difficult time of temptation. They can't seem to overcome uh, sin in their life. Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we can direct them there. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Or what if someone is fearful? Psalm 118, verse 6 and 7. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. What about someone who's grieving? You know, someone who's grieving, you want to help them find strength in God. We remind them of God's promises for anger. For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You know, you're going to get through this. It's difficult and you hurt. But there's joy coming. What about when somebody's discouraged? You know someone who's discouraged? We get discouraged pretty easily, don't we? Psalm 42, 11. Why are you downcast or cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. And it goes on and on and on, right? For those who are discouraged. Psalm 84, 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. You know, God's not going to withhold anything that you need if you just seek His face. Sometimes we need to, we need to be reminded of that, don't we? Philippians 1.6, I've mentioned this the last few weeks, but, and I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ. If someone's just struggling with with just seeing in their life just strongholds and they just ugh, just remind them, you know what? We're weary. We're fighting the flesh. It gets weary, doesn't it? How many of you get tired of that? I am so tired of fighting my pride. I'm just tired of it. You know, one day, I'm not going to be prideful. I'm going to be like Christ. And that fight will be over. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. Again, trying to encourage somebody, Right? With the Word of God, we're trying to help someone who's discouraged find strength in God. What do we do? Well, maybe we could share this text with them so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is doing what? Preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You know, this is really tough and you're going through a hard time, but you know what? Woo. If we persevere, man, it's all going to be worth it, isn't it? Yeah. And the thing about it is, we can do this for ourselves. And when we do this for others, we help Cadence find strength in God. Alicia, we help her find strength in God when she needs it, right? But we can do it for ourselves as, as well. We remind ourselves of the gospel, remind ourselves what God has done for us and what He's going to do. All these verses that you memorize. Remind ourselves of what God has done for us. I, I picked up my phone because I want to share something with you. I have a, a friend of mine. He was actually my pastor, my supervisor when I was on, we were on the mission field. And his name's Steve, and he's a godly man. I love him dearly. And every Sunday morning without fail, I get a text from him. Now, he's on Eastern time. He's, he's an older fella. Um, I tell him, we got a case of the old because we get up so early. Well, he gets up. He's an hour ahead, but he gets up earlier than I do. And sometimes it's 5, 5.30. My phone will ding. 
And it's a message from Steve, and he, he just sends me um, these texts. He says, praying this for you, my brother. Timothy 4, 12 and 16, set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching, he says. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He just sends these to me almost every Sunday morning, like clockwork. Praying this verse for you. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you, may make you, whoop, there's a typo there, may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every good work of faith by his power so that the name of Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Praying for the word to bear fruit in the lives of people where you serve, you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. And this just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. If you look on here, it's usually on Sundays. He sends those to me. But what's he doing? He's just helping me find strength in God because he knows I'm going to be preaching in a few hours, right? Yeah, it's just great. Helping me find strength in the Lord. We can do this for others. We can do it for ourselves just by reminding us our, uh, ourselves of God's promises in the Scriptures. Well, let's continue. Verse 19 through 24. The Ziphites, there were Saul's informants. And it's interesting because they're of the tribe of Judah. But yeah, they're informing Saul about David's whereabouts. And notice Saul's response uh, to the Ziphites in verse 21. And Saul says, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you, have not, for you have had compassion on me. May you be blessed by the Lord. It's funny, he, he still thinks that he's the anointed king who has God's favor. It's like he's delusional, isn't he? He's not even thinking rationally. He's out to take David's life. He can't see reality. He's deceived because that's what sin is. It's very deceptive, isn't it? But we do, we do that sometimes too, don't we? We treat people badly because we think we're in the right, only later to be ashamed of how we reacted, of how we spoke to someone or the things we did. I mean, Jeremiah 17, 9 teaches us not to trust our own hearts, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So that's how Saul can say, oh, may the Lord bless you you've helped me try to take David's life. He can't see. He's delusional, right? He's deceived. But he thinks he's right. Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We can, really, we can think that we're right and be totally wrong. That happens, doesn't it? Well, the pursuit continues, verse 25 through 29. But Saul just can't put his hands on David. And David is cornered. He's about to be taken by Saul. And lo and behold, what happens? A message about the Philistines raiding the land was brought to Saul. And so what does Saul have to do? He has to abandon the pursuit. What a coincidence. What luck. <laughs> yeah. That was just fate. No, that's what God would dictate, right? Because God is sovereign. We've seen that over and over again, that theme throughout this book. Nothing's going to happen unless God allows it or causes it, right? I mean, the one man who could defeat the Philistines is the one man Saul is out to destroy. So Saul leaves the pursuit and goes and fights the Philistines. The second thing, starting in chapter 24, that I think we can take note of today, remember, is godly people are good to their enemies 
Saul finishes chasing off the Philistines, but he continues his pursuit of David. I mean, does Saul not have anything else to do? I mean, he's the king of a nation. Come on, Saul, do something different, right? But he just continues, pours all his energy into trying to find David. So Saul goes into a cave to, it says, relieve himself. And David has this opportunity to take Saul's life. Because David and his men are in the back of this cave. So Saul goes in to relieve himself. Goes to the bathroom, I suppose. But David and his men are in the back of the cave. And his buddies are like, David, this is in chapter 4. You can read it later today. His buddies are like, this is your chance. Now we got him. Let's get him. But what David does, I don't know how he does it. I don't know, it doesn't tell us details. But he, he doesn't harm Saul. He doesn't allow his men to harm Saul, but he cuts off a piece of his robe. Even though all of his buddies are saying, this is our opportunity. The Lord has given them into your hand. But David won't do it. It's funny because right then and there, David could have solved most of his life's problems by taking Saul's life. But I think it's something for us to take note of here, Adriana. You can confuse our circumstances and even our desires for God's will if you're not careful. I mean, they're in the cave. Saul chooses the same cave. He's pursuing David, with everything he has, he goes in the cave. David and his men are in the back of the cave. Wow. You would, many of us would say, that's just an open door. Right? But we, we can really easily confuse our circumstances and our desires for the will of God. For example... We get our tax refund back. And lo and behold, the same day, the bass boat that we've been wanting goes on sale. God is moving in our lives. I feel the Spirit moving. Things are just coming together. The stars are aligning. God is blessing me today. We'll get me a new boat. Or the trouble. You're having trouble, you and your spouse. And it coincides with the hiring of an attractive new co-worker who just so happens to give you a sympathetic ear as you complain about your spouse not meeting your needs. Well, maybe, maybe this is just God give me a way out of my miserable situation. I get a job offer today making a lot more money. This has to be an open door that I dare not shut. Just because you get a job making more money, that don't mean you're supposed to take it. I mean, most of us have had job offers, right? Making more money and it seems like maybe a better job. That's, that doesn't mean that that's the job you need to take if it's not conducive for your family, right? 
It's not a good situation for you. I asked for help with my marriage and I keep running to this new person. It's happened three or four times this week. It must be the providence of God. See, neither our desires nor our circumstances are good guys in determining God's will because they're both so deceptive. Remember the Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart. We deceive ourselves. How do we know God's will? Desires can play a part in that. Be careful though. A lot of times we desire things that aren't His will. He says, well, how do you know that? Because His Word tells us so. And there's occasion, you know, where we're we're just like, man, I'm not really sure what I need to do here. There's occasional how that happens. We need to be seeking His face. And, but a lot of times what we need to know is in the Scriptures. Right? Yeah. Back to our story. There's a little side note there. We need to be careful about that. Saul was in the cave. David could have taken his life very easily and, and would have been applauded for doing so. No one would have faulted him. But the Lord, Right? David didn't take his life. He just cut off parts of his robe. But you know, David, it's interesting. You read chapter 24. He's even grieved that he did that. <sighs> I'm shaming the king. He feels terrible. But he didn't hurt Saul. He didn't let his men hurt Saul. He's like the Lord in that regard, isn't he? I mean, think about it. The Lord doesn't give us what we deserve. David doesn't give Saul what he deserved. But David, he sees that it's impossible to achieve the purposes of God by breaking the commands of God. And so what does he do? Verse 8 through 15 in chapter 24. He gets Saul's attention. He says, look, Saul, I could have taken your life. And I'm going to prove it because look at your robe. Look what I got here, buddy. I could have taken your life while you were in the cave. But I didn't. Let the Lord judge between you and me. See, David, he didn't let all the terrible things Saul was trying to do to David cause him to sin against the Lord. He let all those things go. Why? Because he knew the Lord was a righteous judge and God will make things right. God had promised him to be king. He anointed him to be king. So what is David doing? He's, in a sense, trusting God to do what he said he would do. See, when we trust the Lord... We trust Him to judge rightly. We're freed up to obey and not return evil for evil. Jesus, when He says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, He says, when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. One of the most difficult commands Jesus ever gave. Of course, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount is difficult. But it's chapter 5, verse 39, and he talks about turning the other cheek. Jason, what does that mean, turn the other cheek? It means we don't repay evil for evil. And that's always been difficult. 
I mean, literally, if someone slaps you, what are you going to do? It's hard just to take that, right? But how in the world can we do that as Christians? How can we not return evil for evil? We can not only not return evil for evil, we can return good for evil because we know that God is just, that no sin goes unpunished. See, that's why we want to retaliate because we don't want someone to get off scot-free. We want retribution. But what we as Christians know is that God is just. He will judge rightly because He's righteous. David treated Saul like he didn't deserve. And what is Saul? He's stuck with the guilt and the shame. And you look at verse 17. There's some remorse here. Now we know it's short-lived. Look what he says. You are more righteous than I, David, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? Not Saul. Saul wouldn't do that. But David would. Why? Because he trusted God. Knowing that God deals with people rightly and no sin goes unpunished. All things will be made right. And finishing out the chapter, down deep Saul knows that David is more fit to be king than he And he acknowledges that, look at verse 20. Behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. You're more fit to be a king than I am. You treated me so well and I've treated you terribly. Of course, this this grief is short-lived. And then verse 21 and 22, David vows to treat his family well, which David does. We'll see in future chapters. He keeps his word and he's good to his family. Yeah, we let God take care of our enemies, don't we? Because he's just and we're not. We don't seek out vengeance or revenge because, you know what we do? We usually overestimate the extent of the sin against us. We exaggerate. What's happened to us, what what someone's done to us, it's blown out of proportion usually. We can't be trusted to pour out justice righteously because we're not righteous. God is. So we trust God to do that, right? So how do we treat our business partners to take advantage of us? How do we treat our siblings that seem to have one purpose in life and that's to make us miserable? How do we treat our employer who doesn't give us the raise that he said he would? How do we respond to our neighbor whose dog pulls out our trash from our trash can every night? That leads us to our application today. We treat those who treat us badly like David did Saul, like Jesus treats us. 
Yeah, that's application number one. While we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us. Yeah, we treat, treat people rightly because that's what Christ does for us. And then not always the basis for how we treat other people. Well, how has God treated us? Yeah, we're, we live under the new covenant, right? We've experienced grace. We're to give grace to others. Second thing we, we should do as a result of this text, I think, is we should look to help one another find strength in God. Get a text every Sunday morning from this brother. And usually it's just Scripture. Nine times out of ten, it's just the Word of God. And we do that. Many of us do that. And I'm thankful. And it's helpful, isn't it? You get a timely word. Wow. So helpful. Helping us find strength in God. Thirdly, I want to encourage you, read the Psalms David wrote about here in these last four or five chapters. Let me, if you're taking notes, let me give these to you. I should have put them up on the, on the screen for you. Psalm 52, just to give you a few. Psalm 52, 54, 57, 63, 18, and 142. Those are just a few of the Psalms that he wrote during this, while he's on the run. So I encourage you to read those and see what David is learning from this experience. Yeah, he's, he's going through a difficult time. He's, he's got anointed king and he's been on the run ever since. He's been fighting or on the run ever since. But he's learning. He's learning, right? That's what we learn, right? We learn. God whispers to us in the good times, but he shouts during painful times, doesn't he? And lastly, this... These last few chapters, we see how God spared David's life. You say, what's the main point of the text here? What's well, God taking care of David? We see Jonathan loving on David, helping him find strength in God. David treating Saul rightly. God is just protecting, sparing David's life. Why? So that ultimately David's great son might come, right? Years later, Jesus of Nazareth will be born into the world and he'll die on a cross and rise from the dead for sinners like you and like me. For sinners like David. And so as you read these stories and maybe let it be a reminder that God was committed to making our salvation in Christ certain. Sparing David's life was simply a means to an end who is Jesus. And if God did not spare His own Son in order to redeem us, why should we doubt Him giving us everything necessary for godliness as we live our lives this week? May we trust Him and walk in obedience to Him. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information, and we'll see you next time.